Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. You're listening to a podcast from the South China Morning Post. Hello and welcome to the China Geopolitics Podcast. My name is Jared Watt. I'm the specialist digital editor for the South China Morning Post in Hong Kong, which, like much of the Northern Hemisphere right now, is baking in a record-smashing heatwave. And as if you didn't already know, things are also heating up in the sphere of geopolitics. So it's another special episode we have for you today. Yesterday, the streets in the capital of Taiwan were mostly empty as the 2.5 million residents of Taipei were ordered to stay inside as part of drills aiming to prepare them for a missile attack from mainland China. Meanwhile, along the coastline, the Taiwanese military has kicked off its annual five-day series of exercises designed to prepare for an amphibious invasion launched by PLA forces. But the American media's interest in Taiwan is almost solely focused on the will-she-won't-she question about Nancy Pelosi, the Speaker of the US House of Representatives and third in line to the presidency. Will she fly to Taiwan? Won't this be seen as a direct challenge to Beijing? If you were listening to this podcast back on April the 27th, you would have heard from my colleague Mark Magnier in New York, who first reported on Speaker Pelosi's potential travel plans. Someone I know had an opinion piece sent to them by a retired PLA general suggesting that they were going to potentially intercept her aircraft as it came in. It became very clear that amidst all of the noise in the U.S.-China relationship and the uh, dialed up rhetoric out of the Wolf Warriors and others that this was a really serious issue. That was then. Now it seems a bunch of Republican politicians who've been quite hostile to Nancy Pelosi and the Biden government are now clamouring to book a seat on this as yet unannounced flight. But that's just a sideshow this week as we wait for Joe Biden and Xi Jinping to dial each other up and have a bit of a catch up. So I'm going to catch up with my colleague Rob Delaney in Washington. He's got news on what we can expect from this White House call to Beijing, as well as other news about a substantial raft of legislation targeting China that's about to be passed by the US Senate and Congress. Meanwhile in Beijing, China's President Xi Jinping and Premier Li Keqiang are today meeting with Indonesia's President Jokowi Widodo in person. He's the very first foreign leader to be invited to Beijing since the Winter Olympics back in February. Indonesia's number one trade partner is China, but its number one military partner is the USA. We're going to take a look at this highly nuanced balancing act of diplomacy currently being pursued by President Widodo. You're going to hear from my colleague Resti Woro Yunyari. She's based in Indonesia. She's got some excellent insights into Beijing's extensive diplomatic and economic links with Indonesia, be it building a high-speed rail link that's due to be tested during the G20 meeting in Bali later this year, or indeed finding some investment money for President Widodo's extremely ambitious plan. 
He wants to move his nation's capital city, Jakarta, some 1,200 kilometres across the Java Sea into the heart of the island of Borneo. She's got some fascinating insights into the Indonesia-China-US relationship you'll want to hear. But first, let's head to Washington. Rob Delaney is the SEMP's North American Bureau Chief based in Washington. Good morning, Rob. Welcome back to the podcast. Good morning, Jared. It's great to be back here. Can I start with this ongoing discussion about the Speaker of the U.S. House of Representatives, Nancy Pelosi. Rob, with all that's going on in the United States right now, there's the battle over abortion rights, there's the January 6th testimony, there's the health crisis, the energy crisis, things are on fire. Seems like a strange time to be packing the overnight bags for a quick trip to Taipei. Uh, Indeed. And even up until uh, just today, just a few hours ago, that was the subject of uh, questioning and part of it in the White House press briefing. Still uh, lots of just solid dodging about that question, at least from the White House. Uh, Pelosi's office herself uh, is not saying anything about this. When she will go, is she going? We don't know. Uh, you're right. There's a lot of stuff going on domestically that that is uh, much closer to the uh, concerns of most Americans than what's happening over in the uh, in, in the Western Pacific. But having said all of that, I think that the general consensus is that she still is likely to go uh, only because this is well, it's Nancy Pelosi and. It's not just been in the past couple of years that she's showed this concern about uh, what about the state of Taiwan. Um, it's you know it's it, it, she goes back for many many years uh, in terms of uh, wanting to call China on some of its more um, autocratic practices. I mean, even going back to the 1990s, where she would meet with Chinese dissidents quite frequently. So this is this is very much an issue that is dear to her heart. So uh, regardless of what we're hearing about possible uh, mil- some military response from China, uh, even despite the fact that uh, Biden himself, the White House, seemed to signal some concern about this when Biden said last week that, well, his understanding was that the military doesn't think it's a great idea. You know, I, I don't think anyone expects her to forget about the trip and and pretend that that this uh, that the idea never really welled up. Of course, in our introduction, I referred back to Mark Magny's comments just a while ago, and this was taken, you know, from sources. PLA had kindly offered uh, an aerial escort. It seems a very interesting week to have this discussion, given Taiwan has its annual one-week self-defense air drills. So, Rob, with all of the arms sales from the U.S. to Taiwan, from everything that's going on, what do you know of the agenda that Nancy Pelosi would have in flying in to Taiwan? Well, uh, obviously, I mean, because they haven't even confirmed yet that she's going, it's hard to say. But I th- obviously, with with the fact that Taiwan and uh, mainland China and the, the the tension between the two is something that is, uh, is is a very important topic for her, I think the the agenda would be as wide ranging as possible. Uh, I think it would cover arms sales to Taiwan. It would cover efforts by uh, the mainland Chinese to sort of influence elections or or to perhaps undermine uh, the Taiwan authorities. 
I think it would cover all of these things. Rob, let me steer you back to your most recent story that's up on SCMP.com, and that was about Joe Biden due to call Xi Jinping within the next 10 days. That story was five days ago, meaning it's going to happen this week, or is it? What's the update on this phone call between Biden and Xi Jinping? It looks very likely to happen this week because we had uh, Biden even uh, said himself today that he still expects that call to happen this week. And if we're talking about happening this week, we're still within that 10-day time frame that he spoke of. Uh, so uh, so there, there's no reason at this point to expect that that, that plan has changed. Uh, of course, he had his COVID diagnosis, but uh, the, the, the official word from the White House doctor is that he's doing very well and he's he's cleared most of the uh, the symptoms. So apparently that's not going to be a factor. There's a lot for him to talk about. And I wonder, you know, is it tariffs and the idea that maybe can he lower tariffs without being flayed by the US media for being soft on China? Uh, is it more discussion about a possible world food crisis with you know Ukraine still under attack by, by Russian forces? Or is it indeed this story we're seeing today of what's going on in Myanmar? Tell us more. I'm sure that there will be a discussion of tariffs. Uh, I, I think Biden is is probably looking to make some very na- very small, very narrow changes to the tariffs, but certainly we would not see the tariffs uh, coming down uh, in, in a very significant way. Uh, you're right. You, you mentioned Myanmar uh, because of the, uh, the the fact that the the, the government there said that they had executed these four uh, uh, opposition figures. Uh, we heard the State Department today uh, specifically uh, talk about this issue and say that they are hoping they're they're asking Beijing to uh, to uh, to use their influence uh, in Myanmar to uh, to stop what the government there is doing on this front. So yes, that's very likely to come up. Uh, but of course, then there are all of the other issues. And and yes, uh, tariffs, perhaps, uh, I'm sure tariffs will be mentioned. Beyond that, I don't think you're not going to see Biden change his tone in terms of the generally hard line that he's taken since he assumed office. And, and I think that's a lot of that was reflected, I think, uh, last week, we had uh, National Security Advisor uh, Jake Sullivan talking at the Aspen Defense Forum. And he mentioned, uh, of course, obviously, uh, Russia, Ukraine came up, but he also talked about how that conflict uh, has really helped uh, draw together Washington with its allies. So I think there's a level of confidence that I think uh, Biden has when it comes to uh, uh, support that Washington's looking for to uh, to to keep pressure on uh, on Beijing on a number of fronts, including not supporting uh, Russia's war effort. Uh, but there's another comment that he made that was sort of interesting. He said that. Uh, all of the alliances that the Biden administration has been building, uh, we're talking about um, strengthening of uh, the, the the resolve within the G7 for just as an example, to keep pressure on Beijing. But also, obviously, there's the AUKUS alliance, there's the Quad. He, he referred to this as a, as a high watermark in terms of uh, Washington's ability to, uh, to have leverage uh, against Beijing. Uh, and so I think that kind of I, I would say that's a signal 
that Biden, when he gets into a conversation with Xi Jinping, is not going to be giving up too much. Uh, I think we're going to hear, uh, we're very likely to hear the same kind of messages that he's been delivering all along to China. So what's coming up in Washington this week, I understand there's some substantial legislative moves about to happen. Yeah, that's correct. So, you know, this has been going on for a long time. There was uh, we, we had many, many, many months ago, we had both chambers in Congress passing their own versions of their legislation that's meant to counter China. Uh, the central to that legislation, of course, is uh, billions of dollars in support to the U.S. semiconductor industry. It appears what's going to happen this week is I think we're going to see the Senate uh, finally pass the, the revised legislation that will need to be reconciled with the House. What most people are very confident of is that the, the, the CHIPS Act, which is central to, the, to this sprawling legislation, will, all, will almost certainly pass. And that's because there's just been so much pressure within all corners, really, of, uh, of, of the political spectrum to get the U.S. on better footing when it comes to producing these uh, these these semiconductor chips that are so crucial for everything that we buy and everything that we do, and so we will. I'm quite sure we're going to see that pass. What is not clear yet is how many of the other provisions in that legislation will go along with it. So, for example, there are provisions about Xinjiang. There are uh, there are provisions about um, the South China Sea. There are provisions about uh, establishing a new outbound investment boards that would uh, that would screen any uh, US investors who are looking to uh, to invest in China um, th- the same way this would be a kind of a mirror of the uh, the inbound investment board that has been around for many uh, years and it was strengthened because of concerns about uh, Chinese investors coming in. So um, so we don't know how many of these various other uh, provisions related to China will, will, will pass the Senate. And it's also quite possible that if, uh, assuming that it does pass the Senate, the House might move very quickly on passing their version of it, in which case it goes to Joe Biden's desk very quickly. Rob, sounds like your computer started to come alive with messages of people wanting your attention. Thank you for giving us yours. We will look forward to your team's analysis and news on scp.com on everything coming up in Washington this week. Thanks for your time. Thanks very much, Jared. As critical news stories emerging from China continue to shape lives and business around the world, the weekly SCMP Global Impact Newsletter brings you expert analyses and insights on the economics of COVID-19, society, technology, and the environment. Sign up to receive your weekly email at scmp.com newsletters. Resti Waro Yunia is our Indonesia correspondent currently in Bali, location of this year's G20 meeting. Resty, thank you for your time and welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. It's a real pleasure. Now, Resty, I was looking through the world headlines about Indonesia today and they seem to paint a picture of the complexity and nuance of Indonesia's relationship with both China and the US. On the one hand, today we've got the US Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, General Mark Milley. He's in Jakarta warning that China is increasingly assertive and aggressive And just two weeks ago, China's foreign minister, Wang Yi, was in Jakarta warning about the U.S. 
being increasingly aggressive around Taiwan. Resty, this sort of indicates the strategic importance for Indonesia for both China and the US, but I don't think much attention was given to Wang Yi's visit to Indonesia a couple of weeks ago. Can you just take us back a bit and talk a little bit about what he discussed and, and what was announced in his trip to Jakarta? Thank you for the question. Uh, well, Wang Yi met with President Joko Widodo and, of course, his counterpart, Indonesian Foreign Minister Ratno Marsudi and the Coordinating Minister for Investment and Maritime Affairs, Luhut Panjaitan, while he was in Indonesia a couple of weeks ago to attend the G20's first foreign minister's meeting. And during those meetings, basically, uh, Wang Yi uh, reiterated uh, Beijing's support for Indonesia's presidency at the G20 Forum. And also he forged a new pattern of bilateral cooperation with Jakarta, which basically include uh, political, economic, cultural and maritime aspects. And of course, the green development and digital transformation with President Joko Widodo, Wang Yi wants um, the two sides basically agree to advance the Jakarta-Bandung high-speed railway project, which is a key project in China's Belt and Road Initiative in Indonesia. And of course, with the regarding the war in Ukraine, um, both countries also agree that the agricultural products from Ukraine needs to be reintegrated into the global supply chain because, it, as we know, like Indonesia has been um, trying to bring up the topic of food crisis at the Global Forum for some time now because Indonesia imported a large amount of wheat from Ukraine. So it's trying now to get those uh, wheat back into the market. And China supports Indonesia's efforts in that. And also, of course, with the COVID-19 pandemic, um, China also supports Indonesia's dream of becoming the regional vaccine center. Resty, that's really interesting because we have on previous podcasts, our Inside China podcast, spoken about Beijing's vaccine diplomacy uh, across Southeast Asia, but particularly towards Indonesia. As I speak to you, it's late on a Monday on our side of the world, and Indonesia's president, Joko Widodo, is on a plane headed to Beijing to meet both Xi Jinping and Li Keqiang. Can you tell us more about this trip? What's President Widodo's agenda? What's he hoping to achieve? President Jokowi has never really been interested in foreign affairs, and he only cares about foreign policy, if it will help with his infrastructure drive back home. And so it underlines how important China is for Indonesia, as uh, Beijing is the first destination in this trip, and followed by Tokyo. And, and so we can tell right away that Indonesia needs investment from China. And because Indonesia, under President Jokowi, has this really ambitious goal to build as many infrastructures, you know, as we can, um, because that's basically Jokowi's main focus in his second term. So Indonesia is running this uh, sovereign wealth funds, but unlike uh, the other sovereign wealth funds, which typically manage 
large national saving pools, Indonesia's sovereign wealth funds will seek to attract foreign investors to help fund Indonesia's economic development, including the new capital in Borneo. And so investment will be high in the agenda and also boosting trade because China is Indonesia's largest trading partner and also its second biggest foreign investors after Singapore. Resting, you mentioned an ambitious infrastructure project, but I think that's even understating it because no other country in the world is planning to move its capital city to a new location right now. That's one project. And also there's what's considered a somewhat troubled high-speed fast rail project in Indonesia as part of the Belt and Road Initiative. Can you tell us more about that particular project and, and what's the status of that right now? The Jakarta-Bandung high-speed uh, railway project has been ongoing for seven years now, and it has uh, run into uh, so many issues, including the latest, which is uh, cost of run. So Indonesia is facing nearly $2 billion. And at the beginning of the project, President Jokowi said that he will not use state fund to build this project. But at the end of the day, to cover this cost overrun, Jakarta will use taxpayers' money to, you know, just to complete this project. And I think it's about 80% complete now. Like at the beginning, it was riddled with problems such as land procurement. There were social conflicts that rose at the beginning of the project. And then, of course, with the China funded projects in Indonesia, there's also the question of, you know, whether the project will employ Chinese workers or domestic workers. And now the problem is uh, the cost of run. And I think the target now is to have a trial run in November or December. And why November was because uh, President Xi Jinping is set to attend G20 summit, which will be held later in November in Bali. Resty, that's really interesting. There's, you know, billions of dollars overrun on a major rail link. Uh, Beijing has really pursued some form of, you could say, fast rail diplomacy through Southeast Asia, building these fast rail projects. A lot of politics to do with Chinese laborers or Chinese workers coming in during COVID to work in Indonesia. Obviously, some domestic politics there. But you also mentioned that issue of the Sovereign Wealth Fund, it sounds like Indonesia's president is looking for Chinese investment into Indonesia's Sovereign Wealth Fund. Yes, because as of now, Indonesia have only one investor so far in the Sovereign Wealth Fund. It is from Abu Dhabi. And um, the way that the Wealth Fund is structured, it will need more than just one investors. And so far, I think Indonesia has talked to Japan and China about getting some investments into the fund because the fund will be used to also fund major infrastructure projects, including the new capital. And we've mentioned this briefly. Let's get into this. Resty, for those of us who haven't heard about this, can you give us a recap of this astonishing 21st century project? Is Indonesia really going to move its capital city and the tens of millions of people who live there? 
if Jokowi gets his way, then yes, uh, many, many people in Jakarta will have to move. And the first phase of that movement will be in 2024 when Jokowi ends his second term, his second and last term. And it is a massive project. It will cost Indonesia at least $34 billion dollars. And there is no guarantee at this point in time whether the project will be continued if Jokowi is no longer president because there were some oppositions, not only from people that opposes to Jokowi's policies in general, but also from environmentalists and the indigenous communities in Borneo, where the new capital will be. And just to recap, Resty, why does it have to move? It's not a vanity project by Widodo, is it? What's the need for this move? According to Jakarta, it's to distribute the wealth of Indonesia to other islands beyond Java, because Java is the center of economic activities in Indonesia. And so the idea is because the new capital will be in Borneo, that is smack dab in the center of Indonesia, so it will be easier for the wealth to be dispersed to other islands beyond uh, Java. And also, we also have problem with Jakarta. It's a huge metropolis city. It has 30 million people on the weekdays and 10 million people on the weekends. It's sinking. It has pollution problems, whether it's air pollutions or noise pollutions, and Also, every monsoon, there's always floodings. And Jakarta is just this, I like to call it like a, this huge um, organized mess. If you live there, you will know why it will, like the people there like have like a love-hate relationship with the city. But if you ask Jakartans now whether they want to move to Borneo from Jakarta, despite all the problems that Jakarta has, I think majority of people will not want to move because the center of economic activities in Indonesia at this point in time is still in Jakarta and that will be hard to replicate just by building some big state palace or moving all the other uh, government agencies, offices to Borneo because it will take so much more than that to replicate what Jakarta has to offer now. Resty, let's talk about this G20 meeting that's coming to Bali later this year. A lot of discussion in the Western media about whether Vladimir Putin should be uninvited from it all. But there's much bigger questions going on. It's from an Indonesian perspective, you know, what's the important thing to look for in the lead up to this G20? For Indonesia as a president, I think the measure of success will be to gather all world leaders in one room in Bali in November. And that includes Vladimir Putin and uh, Joe Biden in the same room and also Xi Jinping. So this is why Jokowi has been willing to go to the distance lately. He went to Munich to attend G7 summit. And then after that, he went to Kiev and to Moscow. And now he's in Beijing and followed by Tokyo and Seoul afterwards. So in his mind, stepping out of his comfort zone, you know, by largely staying in Indonesia to cater to domestic issues, is no longer an option now as a G20 president. So he he's willing to finally step out onto the world. 
you know, some of the people that I talk to that knows about Djokovic's thinking, if he manages to gather uh, world leaders and to sit them in one room at the same time, then it will make Indonesia a successful G20 president. And a successful G20 presidency will ensure Djokovic's legacy, not only with domestic voters, but also with the international community. That's why Indonesia has been neutral. Like he wants Joe Biden to attend the G20 summit. It also doesn't want to exclude uh, Vladimir Putin because Russia is still a G20 member. That's why President Jokowi went to Kiev to invite um, Zelensky to attend the G20 summit later. There's a lot going on here. Indonesia's got a huge economic relationship with China. Earlier this year, Indonesia signed off on 14 billion US dollars worth of advanced fighter jets from the US. There's a lot of nuance to come. Uh, we look forward to hearing more from you and more from you after President Jokowi Widodo's trip to Beijing. It sounds like there's a lot to talk about for those leaders. Resti Waro Yunia, thank you very much for your time. It's a real pleasure to speak to you. Thanks for having me, Jared. That's all for this week's bonus episode of the China Geopolitics Podcast. If you have an interest in public holidays, I see next Monday, August the 1st is PLA Day, marking the formation of the People's Liberation Army of China in 1927. Not sure what you buy the world's largest standing army for its 95th birthday, but we can be reasonably certain there'll be a parade and showing off of some hardware. And of course, the news happening in Beijing and Washington today and this week will be covered by my colleagues in SEMP newsrooms and bureaus in Hong Kong, Beijing, Washington and across the world. So don't forget the latest news updates and analysis at scmp.com. If you're one of our listeners in the Northern Hemisphere, I can only wish upon you access to air conditioning or at least some shelter from the heat. And wherever you are, don't give in to pandemic fatigue. The exhausted nurses, doctors, carers are counting on you to wear your mask and get yourself that booster shot. Take care. Bye.